Uh, welcome to, to Gospel Church. Uh, let's, let's just start off by praying. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this amazing time of year where we can celebrate all that you've done in the world through Jesus. I just pray that you would give us a, a fresh understanding of that, a, a greater understanding of the depth of your grace and your love toward us. Uh, I pray that your spirit would be here working in us uh, to give us understanding, to give us hope, to give us joy in the gospel. Uh, we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is the third week out of four of, of our Joy to the World uh, series. Uh, we've been looking at the, the four different verses in the song Joy to the World. Uh, this one is a little bit less well-known than the, the other three. For some reason, it seems to be the one that's more commonly left out, which I don't really know why, given there's only four verses in the original. Um, some of the hymns had like 36 verses, so I understand why they had to pick and choose a little bit. But um, I don't know, maybe it kind of takes away from that, the happy theme of the song. It's, um, you know, um, with sort of a reality check as to what the world is, is really like. You know, the first two verses are about joy to the world, joy to the earth. Uh, all of nature is singing God's praises. We're um, responding with repeated singing. And then the third verse is about sins and sorrows in, in a cursed world. And, and yes, it's about Jesus coming and fixing the broken and cursed world. Um, but nonetheless, it's a reminder that our world is still broken. So maybe, maybe that's the reason why it's left out. I don't really know. But I don't know, I'm pretty sure from now on, whenever we sing this song, we'll be including all four, four verses. So. Um, yeah, so let's, let's look at the third verse there. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That right there is the gospel. That's the summary of the gospel. Jesus has come to save us from the mess that we're in. We've turned away from God in sin and the result is a cursed, fallen world, death and suffering, sorrows. And Jesus came to bless us by coming and fixing his creation. By dying for our sins and rising again from the dead. And then one day in the future he'll remove the curse, restore the whole creation, including us. So that's all of world history in a nutshell right there, past, present and future. That, that's the bird's eye view of the history of mankind and the history of what God is doing in the world. And so the amazing thing about the Bible is that it actually gives us a foundation, a, uh, an, an entire worldview. That's the, the way in which we view or see the world, the, way, the lens through which we interpret the world around us. And it actually helps us to make sense of everything around us. And I think that's especially true when we contrast it with opposing worldviews. I think we take for granted just how much we understand about the world because of the biblical worldview. Uh, and so it's important to see, see the contrasting worldviews and what they have to offer in interpreting the world around us. So I'm going to quickly run through a few of the opposing worldviews um, in contrast to the biblical worldview. And so I got to deal with this lots uh, at uni and obviously working in science labs, this was just constant conversations of things, things like this. Um, so, you know, and, and that's, this is increasing in the West. You're going to have to be dealing with the, this type of thinking more and more than perhaps you would have 40, 30, 40 years ago. So the atheistic worldview says there is no God and, and therefore humanity and everything around us that we see is just a, a very complex but cosmic accident that's all there is to it. We're all here for no reason, no purpose, 
Uh, we can obviously create our own purpose, is what they'd say, but when we create our own purpose, we're using purposeless brain cells to create that purpose, so it's still all meaningless. It can't account for, for moral evil. Uh, it, it can't account for human value. It actually gets things the wrong way around. When we look at the Bible, it starts off with humanity being created in the image of God. We're infinitely valuable because we're made by God. But then at the same time, we're also capable of great evil in, in turning away from God. Whereas the, the atheistic worldview gets it the wrong way around, that we're actually just highly evolved animals, but morally we're, we're okay, depending on what you feel morality means that day. And probably another big one is that it doesn't account for our view of suffering. We're talking about sins and sorrows in the world, and we'll be uh, touching on that quite a bit today, of, of the sorrow in, in a fallen world. But in the atheistic worldview, suffering, it's just the way things are. It's the way things have always been. It's the way they're perhaps meant to be. And the way Richard Dawkins puts it, he says that the, the world, in the world there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The world, the universe doesn't care if you're suffering or if you're happy. It doesn't really matter. But the Bible gives us an explanation as to why there's suffering in the world, which I'll be touching on in a moment. Uh, so the next worldview, I've kind of made up the name for it, the delusionally optimistic worldview. Delusionally isn't a word, but I'm sticking with it. Um, I think it is. It is? I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Okay, good, good. Makes it even better. No. Um, but, but I'm sure you've, you've met these people that are... And I mean, there's nothing wrong with um, some optimism, but optimism about humanity and the goodness in humanity. You've met people that just think that humanity is essentially good the world is, is a wonderful you know, place where everything is just going swimmingly. Everything between God and humanity is A-OK. -okay. God loves just the way we are. But it can't account for the evil that's in the world. Those people that, that live in that blinded worldview, it, that doesn't last very long. It doesn't take long for life to catch up with us and we realise the world actually isn't that great all the time. And, and this is similar to sort of uh, a relativistic worldview. I, I dealt with this a lot at uni, people that believe that um, there's no such thing as, as uh, objective truth. Truth is just relative. Morality is relative. You can all just uh, do whatever you like as long as you do whatever feels right for you. That humanity is pretty much either perfect or innately good. Um, as long as each person is choosing their own path, that's, that's fine. And there was a great, a great quote by uh, a minister called R.C. Sproul. He said, How do you prove the existence of sin to someone who doesn't believe it exists? Steal their wallet. So pretty soon they'll be able to recognise injustice. So I'm not actually telling you to go and do that. But, but it, is, it is very true though. People uh, talk a big game when they say, Oh, all truth is relative, morality is relative. As soon as something happens against them... They very quickly have a good sense of morality when they know that someone has, has wronged them. They, they're more than capable of recognising injustice. And, and we all are because God has given us a conscience, this innate knowledge of right and wrong. But our, our culture, especially in, in the West, in the, the prosperous, prosperous West, we can, we can be pretty blind to, to sin and injustice because we have so many things going right and so many blessings in our culture, so much prosperity. But I think even, even we recognise that the, uh, you know, you've seen a few of the um, Christmas movies that are on this time of year, the really 
stereotypical, cliche, magic of Christmas, happy ending kind of thing, um, we realise that doesn't actually match up with our own experience of the world. And, and we've sort of touched on that uh, during the prayer time as well of just how, how Christmas can actually be a really difficult time of year, not the, the magic that the Hallmark movies portray it as. Now, I'm not going to list all the problems in the world because we haven't got you know, several hours and days to list all the problems in the world, but, but even, even in our own community, Christmas will be a painful time of year. There, there are broken families that are figuring out how they're going to meet up, who gets the kids for Christmas this year. There's going to be people not talking to each other, certain people not talking with other people at the same Christmas table, bickering and arguing over lunch. There's going to be families, even, even in this town, there'll be families that can't afford presents this year for Christmas. And there's, there's people that lost their homes to fires just a few weeks ago. So Christmas isn't going to be that magical Hallmark movie kind of, kind of deal. And so the message of Christmas for us isn't to pretend that everything's okay. It's to offer genuine hope in a world that seems hopeless. So most of us recognise that there's a problem. That, that part isn't the most difficult thing to sell, that, hey, the world seems pretty broken and messed up. I think most people can be pretty easily convinced of that. But the, the difficulty there is how do we fix it? What, what do we actually do about it? Uh, and that's where we have the next... Basically, everything else. This is, this is the worldview that encapsulates pretty much every bit of thinking other than the gospel, which is that it's up to us. It's the moralistic worldview where we need to do something to fix what's wrong with the world. And the problem is that they tend to misdiagnose the problem or minimise it and basically say the problem with humanity isn't something within us, it's not within me, it's within other people. It's, it's other people that's the problem or it's something external, it's society that's the problem, not, not me. It's those other people out there. Or we just need to get the right political system in or enough education and then all the world's problems will be solved. I mean, there's partial truths to that. It's good to get good politicians in power. It's good to have strong education. But it doesn't solve humanity's innate problem of sin. I mean, Kim Jong-un is the most evil dictator in the world and yet uh, studied, studied at a, a high-class university in Switzerland, but it didn't stop him from being a maniac and horribly evil. So the, the solution to our problem doesn't rely in uh, education or the right political system when the problem is innate within humanity. So the problem with all of these moralistic worldviews is that they look to ourselves for the solution. And how's that working out so far in our broken world? So then maybe we just need to fix ourselves. If the problem is, is within us, then it's up to us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and fix ourselves. But what if our problem includes a complete helplessness and inability to fix ourselves? We're stuck. And, and that means the only hope is something outside of ourselves. That is the whole reason why we need a saviour, is because we cannot save ourselves. And that's what we see in the Bible. It just In such contrast, the biblical worldview, it doesn't see us as a cosmic accident. It doesn't see us without value. We see God creating a good and perfect world, humanity created in the image of God, created to worship God, but then something has gone catastrophically wrong, and we, and we read that in, in Genesis 3 before. So it's weird how we can, we can look at the same piece of evidence and come to completely different conclusions. Some people look at the suffering in the world and go, there cannot possibly be a God. Look at, look at all the evil and the suffering in the world. 
But instead, we should look at that very same suffering and conclude that something has gone wrong in the world, that this isn't the way things are supposed to be, and that our only hope is outside intervention. So Genesis just <coughs> makes so much sense when we look at the world around us. Or, or probably, the, probably the other way around, that actually the world makes so much sense when we look at it through the lens of Genesis and understand the biblical worldview. And it's odd, just there, there's such contrast when we look at the world around us that on the one hand we can see the beauty of human relationships and, and the fellowship that we have here, but we can also see the disaster of, and the tragedy of broken relationships. When, when you look at the, the creation, when, when you see you know, the, the David Attenborough documentaries where there's amazing complexity and beauty, uh, but then animals chasing down another animal and tearing it to shreds, there's beauty and tragedy in this weird uh, contrast, but the biblical worldview holds that tension together and it actually makes sense of them. It's, there's, there's beauty because it's designed by God and there's tragedy because it's all gone wrong at the fall. And so in, our, in both of our Bible readings this morning, we actually saw the, the big picture of, of human history, both the start and the end of God's plan, the, the, the creation uh, and the fall of humanity in Genesis and then... Uh, the reconciliation and, and restoration in Revelation. That was unintentional alliteration there. Right. Uh, so what does all of this have to do with Christmas, though? Talking about Genesis and talking about Revelation, uh, the answer is everything. This has everything to do with Christmas. Because Jesus coming down to earth is necessary for God's final plan. And understanding the state of the world, the fall and broken world that we're in, completely makes sense as to why Jesus had to come. And so this is the running theme that we see through the scriptures, the, the curse of the fall. So in Genesis, we see a curse placed upon the creation. Uh, so this is in, in the, the middle of, of Genesis 3. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. But then at the end of Revelation, it's actually in the next chapter than what we read out in Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So all of that is only possible because of what we see in the center point of human history. And, and that's the, the middle reading there in, in Galatians chapter 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So we were cursed because of our inability to keep God's law. We've all failed at that. Again, we, we talk about the problem in the world in very broad, uh, a broad sense, and we're, perhaps we're, we're guilty of doing the same thing. The problem in the world is everyone else out there rather than me. But when I compare myself to God's law, I realise actually the problem is within me, not, it's not what's external. And so because of that, a curse lies upon all of us because of our failure to keep God's law. And yet here we see Jesus. This is what the Christmas message is about. It's about Jesus, God in the flesh, stepping into his own broken creation to undo the damage and the sorrows caused by human sin by taking that curse upon himself. When he was dying on the cross, he was doing it for your sins. The, the curse that, that sin brought, he was taking it upon himself. So that we don't have to experience that. We don't have to experience judgment in the future. 
And so we've learned in previous weeks, it's, it's sort of been a pretty extended Christmas series by, by covering the first couple of chapters of Luke and then heading straight into another Christmas series. Uh, but, but we've learned about a wide variety of different way, uh, reasons as to why Jesus came. So in previous weeks, we learned about how Jesus came so he can experience humanity, uh, so that he can sympathize with us uh, in our suffering and in temptation. Uh, we know that he came to earth to reveal God to us, to be our teacher, to be our example. But his primary mission was to come and to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. And I know that sounds a bit more like an Easter message than, than a Christmas message, but, but this is the whole reason why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. If he didn't come and die for our sins and rise again, we would still be lost in our sins. We wouldn't be reconciled with God and then we probably wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. We would just be lost and dead in our sins. So that's the whole reason why we celebrate the coming of Jesus. And so not only did, did sin enter the world um, and, and all of its consequences, death and suffering and sorrows uh, in Genesis, but we also see at the end of that, that first Bible reading that humanity was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But that, that actually meant they were kicked out of the presence of God that we were created to be in right relationship with God, worshipping Him. And then instead we were kicked out of His presence. And so Jesus coming to earth, He deals with our sin, but He also deals with the broken relationship. He reconciles us to Himself. But then the odd thing about this... Um, this verse enjoyed the world. It talks about um, Jesus coming and blessing and blessing us and fixing the the sin and sorrows in the world. But the world is still broken, so I can understand why people still struggle to cope with the state of the world. Not everything is fixed just yet. Not everything is the way it should be just yet. But through Jesus, we have hope. People complain about the, the evil and suffering in the world and say, why doesn't God come down here and fix it? Why doesn't he rid the world of evil? Well, he will. He will return to judge the world. But the problem is that includes us. Our problem is that we want God to go and judge the evil out there. We want him to judge everyone else but me. You know, Judge all those bad guys, but leave me alone. Let me go and do what I want to do. But God is actually being merciful in this by, by holding off in his return. He, he's giving us a chance to repent. See, in his first coming, we, we all know John 3.16, but, but the very next verse is, is just as good. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to save his people. The next time he'll come to judge, but right now you have the chance to be reconciled and forgiven by God. So not only can you have your sins forgiven now, but you can also be reconciled with God, undoing all the damage of the fall, being kicked out of Eden. You can know God personally. And you can have certain hope in a broken world that things will be fixed, that, that you will be with God in a restored creation.
That's why when we read those verses in in Revelation 21 of a, a new heavens and a new earth and God dwelling with his people, you can read yourself into that text when you trust in Jesus, that you will be in a, a world that is fixed, a world that's restored, a world where people dwell with God. And the main reason why I'm certain that God will fulfill his promises, you know, we've been waiting a while now, over 2,000 years, waiting for his return. We're going, when is it going to happen? And people mock, saying, you know, How can you be sure that he's going to return? He hasn't set a date, but he has promised that he'll return. And I think the thing for me that gives me the greatest hope is the promises that he gave of his first coming. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, God giving promises that he would send a Messiah, a Saviour, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He promised that the Messiah would be a teacher of righteousness that would speak in parables, that he would come to save both Jews and Gentiles that he would fulfill the Old Testament sacrificial system by by atoning for our sins, and most importantly, that death wouldn't hold him, but that he would rise from the dead. And so if God fulfilled all of those promises in his first coming, then I can be equally confident that God will fulfill his promises to come and remove the curse and fix and restore our broken world. So that's not just some vague, oh, I, I hope it's true. You can have genuine hope. Hope that your sins can be removed. Hope that you can be reconciled with God. Hope that God will come and fix the world. So of all the different worldviews that we examined earlier on, they all look to yourself. That's the problem with them. So so this Christmas, don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. this, This is why we celebrate him. We praise him. We worship him. Because he's the saviour of the world, not us. He's the only hope that we have, the only one capable of fixing the mess that we find ourselves in. And if you do turn to him, if you do put your trust in him, believe in him, he will not let you down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do offer salvation to us. We, We have no hope without you. We're incapable of saving ourselves. We're incapable of fixing this world but I thank you that we have hope in you I thank you for your amazing plan of salvation in Jesus just thank you that we can have hope in your promises of your future salvation as well Lord help us to not lose sight of that in our our broken world Amen